So here we are, and uh, wonderful Kumersbach yet again. Uh, I have with me, well, firstly, I'm Clinton. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome to another episode of IAF Talk. Uh, I will be your host, Clinton Deprier, for this episode. Um, I'm currently part of the facilitation team for a seminar we are uh, having here at the IAF on campaigning tools uh, and strategy in political parties. And uh, we thought, what better time to capitalize on the expertise that we have at the Academy than to invite our guests to have a podcast about it and discuss some interesting things about strategy and tools. So I have here with me in the room, Jonathan Mokes and uh, Warwick Chapman, who are also a guest facilitators and part of the facilitation team. Uh, Warwick and Jonathan, say hi to the people. Hello, great to be here. Um, this is Jonathan speaking, by the way. <laughs> sound like you're on the telephone. <laughs> Hello to the people. This is Warwick Chapman speaking. So Jonathan, uh, just uh, tell us briefly, wh- where are you from? What do you do? Why are you here? Yeah. Uh, so firstly, why I'm in Gummersbach is um, it, I'm a part of the campaign uh, seminar. So I've been uh, spending the, the, the past 24 hours talking about campaign strategy. And this morning we've got a session on fundraising. Uh, but <clears throat> where I'm uh, from is I'm currently a vice president at a company called uh, GQR, Greenberg, Quinlan, Rosner. It's a opinion research firm that's also branching out into capacity building for political parties, campaign support, fundraising support. Uh, so I work on projects for GQR. Prior to that, um, my political experiences from the DA, Democratic Alliance in South Africa, where I worked for 14 years uh, in a number of roles, chief executive officer, uh, strategist, campaign director, uh, and fundraising. Amazing. So it's quite um, fortuitous that you should be here when we're talking about campaigns. It's almost like it was engineered, huh? Who would have thought? So Warwick, you also have a history in the DA um, and you've also joined this uh, campaign campaign seminar as one of the uh, facilitators. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into politics and campaigning. Sure. I'm a technologist, I guess, in the first instance. And... um, I uh, joined the Democratic Alliance about 12 years ago, um, became uh, an elected public representative at um, city government level um, uh, in 2009, got elected again in 2011, and then um, made the decision uh, at the request of the party to move um, to the head office and to to, to try and um, bring some innovation at the nexus of politics and technology. And I've been working in that space very closely with um, Jonathan for many years um, and, uh, and even more recently with yourself, um, Clinton, and, um, and working to build uh, a formidable technology ecosystem that the DA has been able to use um, to make sure that it has uh, the most effective campaign and party organization possible Mm. yeah i think it's such a it's such an interesting time in the world for campaigns and campaigning 
where there's, <clears throat> I think there's like a, there's a whole mixture of things happening all at the same time. You have great apathy mm. um, on the one hand rising, and almost this this disenchantment with politics in general. People say, "Oh, all political parties are the same. Leave me alone. I'm I'm sick and tired of this." And yet, on the other hand, uh, on the other hand, it's it's almost like the battlefield in campaigning and and political parties have become so much more polarized and so much more volatile and almost cutthroat. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, just what is your, what is your sense of um, the appetite in the world for, for political parties and political campaigning in the world? I thought, yeah, the, the thought just occurred to <clears throat> me. So I think there's a great appetite for political campaigning. And I actually think that contrary to popular opinion, there isn't as much apathy as people like mm. to think. I think there is apathy when it comes to political parties, actually. I think people are tired of uh, traditional political parties, traditional ways of organizing, having to attend branch meetings. Um, and they're also tired of having to well, be forced to think about politics in the same old ways, left versus right, um, you know, social Democrat versus liberal versus left. Um so, so that's on the one hand. I think you've seen in throughout the world, you know, from the streets of Hong Kong um, to numerous protests in, in Eastern Europe to the climate strike uh, across the world, mm. that there's strong mobilization for people to stand up and fight for causes they believe in. And I think the big opportunity for political campaigners who believe in a better world, who believe in pursuing the spirit of freedom is to, is to harness that. So, um, you know, a lot of people talk about populism and authoritarianism and all these kinds of trends sweeping the world. I actually think it's a, it's a really exciting time to be involved in the world of political campaigns. There's big opportunities uh, to, to strike a blow for the cause of freedom if you harness the um, potential that's out there. Um, but I think we have to think completely out of the box and innovatively. Mm. Yeah, I think the political party system <clears throat> facilitates a distancing of the electorate from, uh, let's call it the political class. Um, and political parties become echo chambers uh, that um, sustain thinking and attitudes that become quite distinct from the population that they uh, claim to represent. So when you see huge portions or entire population seemingly standing up and protesting, it has to be a loud uh, um, signal that the people that have been elected to represent them are not doing that. They're not doing, they're not speaking for them they're not making the noises about the things that the population um, or, or the affected portion of the population feel is important, so they have to take to the streets. Now, as we know, this um, ha- has varying degrees of applicability across the world because there are lots of authoritarian regimes, um, but there are also um, regimes like, uh, let's, let's call them, Let's have a look at America, for example, where you really do get a sense that the political class there is largely quite distinct from the the normal population, and um, and things like um, the Black Lives Matter movement 
um, you could imagine that movement having a hard time resonating with the average senator in the states. Mm. Um, so, so I I really do feel like there there is a lot of scope for. Um, you know, dare I sound cliched, innovative thinking in campaigning, but also innovative thinking from candidates. Um, uh, and and I don't even really feel so wild about moving, uh, working with parties anymore. Uh, I'd like to kind of work with candidates and movements. And if you're a party that hasn't figured out how to be a movement, and I think to be a movement you have to be fundamentally and permanently connected with the people. Mm. You can't become distanced or separated because then you become mm. a political party. So so uh, what I failed to mention earlier is is that uh, I'm sort of freelancing these days and um, doing work inside and outside of the political environment. What you can't see now is he's handing out his business cards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and and yeah so so i uh i think there's a big opportunity um and 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 I, in, in a way for those people who keep sort of railing against the system i think there's also a responsibility to um to make some commitments to actually try and find another path yeah i mean to there's so much to unpack already <laughs> there's two main things maybe standing out for me now at this stage. The one is this this inability slash opportunity that there is for um, any political campaign to to think about what does it really mean to connect with people on the ground? What does it mean to speak their language? What does it mean to not distinguish themselves from the people they're asking to vote for them? What does it mean uh, for you to connect with someone? And the other thing I was hoping we could talk about is this this idea of, you know, moving away from political parties and more towards a movement. How do you actually do that and where have we seen that work in the world or not? So whichever of those yeah. things you want to talk about, let's do that. <laughs> well, I think I think uh the I mean, let me pick up on the on the political party um, shifting to a movement because mm. it's quite fascinating because I don't think political parties or members of political parties listening to us going, well, hang on, is there, you know, are we dead? No, absolutely not. Uh, as Warwick has, men- has mentioned, it's about as a political party trying to harness the potentials out there and, and, and shifting to a movement. And I think it's about redefining what your purpose is um uh, thinking about your purpose not as saying well this is a part this is a vehicle for me to get elected or for my political party members to be elected it's rather about actually saying well am i not a vehicle in order to realize a purpose mm. um for um people and citizens to to actually fulfill their dreams mm. um <clears throat> and I think, you know, many political parties and campaigns and, you know, Warwick mentioned the American example. I mean, in America, you've got fairly weak political parties and strong candidates, but there they've created a kind of conventional system that sets up the establishment. Uh, But it's about actually creating bottom up. And this sounds incredibly cliche as well. Everybody (laughs) talks about bottom up, but I don't think people take the time to actually say, well, what does bottom up mean? Um, And bottom up, 
genuinely means saying if you want to make something happen, then <clears throat> excuse me, getting all emotional about this at the moment. Um, <laughs> but being bottom up means uh, let me have an opportunity to contribute and to be part of it. Uh, you know, Warwick and I um, have thought long and hard uh, about this. We tried to, uh, and Clinton, you were part of this. Uh, build a, a field organization for the DA and um, hopefully it, the foundations that we build will be will will be continued upon but what we tried to achieve there was not well where there's someone that believes in your cause that wants to affect change mm -hmm. there needs to be the capability of them being absorbed empowered given the tools and also not just given the tools, but they need to have the opportunity to contribute what they think should happen. And they have the ability to adapt um, and to help campaign and help communicate in a way that they believe will work in their particular communities. Mm -hmm. So I think a key first start to, to think about, and you can talk for hours about this is to ensure that anybody that wants to get involved um, uh, is able to get involved immediately, is welcomed, is embraced, and is not only empowered, but is also given the opportunity to immediately contribute, feel that they contribute, and feel that they are are, are listened to. Mm. And I think the you know one of the the best recent examples of that happening um, is on Marsh um, in uh, in in France, uh, where I think they achieved that incredibly. They built something uh, bottom up. It sort of was a movement that has subsequently turned into a political party. Um, someone who is um, trying to replicate that in a current election at the moment um, is is Rory Stewart, who's an independent candidate for the mayor of London. Um, he's um, trying to actually break the mold of traditional party politics in the UK by um, building a, a movement from the ground up in uh, roughly 32 uh, sort of villages of London, if you call them, they call them boroughs. Um, and he wants to create citizens' assemblies where people almost can come talk about the sort of policies and what they want to see in London. And actually he wants to act as a vehicle um, to to realize what the people of London actually want to see and almost have a kind of crowdsourcing of his policy platform for the campaign. Um, that can get a bit tricky when, uh, you know, you obviously have a specific philosophy that you want to follow. Um, but generally speaking, when you put yourself out there, people will respond because they believe in the direction of the philosophy. And then it's a, a question of sort of unpacking the details. Um, so I think there are lots of ways and means of doing it. And of course, um, you know, the you know, everybody talks about digital these days, but but politics is becoming digital, as is the world. Um, and uh, something that's incredibly exciting about building movements is how traditional field um, and building of movements intersect with digital organizing, and there's so much capacity to do things fast and quickly. Yeah, and I guess it brings a lot more flexibility as well. If you think about the fact that people, well, I get the sense at least that um if if it's easy, I mean, it, it it is easier for people to connect with you based on um, sharing the same thing that that you that you fight for or the, a cause that you that that you both believe in. Um, and I get the sense that that there are some political parties that are overly obsessed with um, 
you know, bringing someone into into the fold. You must become a member before mm. you can campaign for us, before you can join the movement. And it's almost like what I hear from you is that it's it's moving away from that. Mm. We have to be a lot more flexible to say, if you believe in the cause, join in, man. Grab a board, paint something on a thing, or let's go door to door. Let's go. Let's get out and connect with, with and other sh- people. And more. show us and show us what works in your community, and also let us learn from you. Yeah. Um. You know. We, you know, one mistake that that is made in in party headquarters around the world is is this belief that we know best and uh, we know what works. And then similarly, sometimes you get it from the opposite end. We're saying in my constituency, in my ward, this is what works. But you know, what's really great about the way way movements are working? If I live in a particular street. And I say I want to actually go and canvas and um, and shift these people to the movement. I actually know better. I know my neighbours. Um, I know my community. I can actually connect. And 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 parties, movements, candidates need to embrace enthusiasm and allow people to bring their local knowledge and their expertise to do it. And it it just makes for makes campaigns so much more exciting. Yeah. And how does Warwick? How does tech help us um, make campaigns exciting? How does it help us connect with people in their local areas without becoming uh, the the tech overlords that uh, that watch us all the time? <laughs> Goodness gracious! Oh, very sinister. Please solve all our problems for us. <laughs> um, well. Uh, I said I'm a technologist, um, but but I think over the years, um, particularly in the campaign context, I've also become quite a techno skeptic, if mm. that's a thing, um, and uh, and I often kind of warn people against, um, you know, please, you know, raise the red flag when someone comes and presents something to you that you don't understand how it works, but it sounds like magic. Sounds like it's going to solve a lot of your problems without you having to do the normal hard work of campaigning. Um, uh, you know, they're either breaking the law or selling you snake oil. Mm. Um, and if they're doing both of those things, then their name is Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> I was just about to say. <laughs> <laughs> and watch out for the Netflix documentary coming soon. <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, and, and I mean, Jonathan and I have very personal experience in this regard because that snake oil is very alluring mm. to political principles who want to solve the very real and difficult problems of getting into power, uh, of making progress in tough electoral environments with this kind of magic. And, um, you know, people in charge of campaigns can get put under a lot of pressure to work with people like Cambridge. And, um, you know, we could never have predicted this, but both of us basically put our jobs on the line and said we absolutely will not work with Cambridge Analytica. Mm-hmm. So choose between us and them. In the end, they chose us. Um, and then later down the line, we found out some interesting things about Cambridge, all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, As can be seen on Netflix right now in The Great Hack, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify, you're not getting any commission no. on that, uh, that documentary. <laughs> um, but what's interesting, uh, if you have a look at the details there, I understand that um, I'm absolutely not answering your question, but I am demonstrating a powerful communication technique here. <laughs> Um, Avoiding the question. Uh, well, it's called like actually a, the art of the pivot. So yeah. you know, ah, he's, talk, he's talking about what he wants to talk about. Yeah. Um, so, uh, 
Um, when the lid was lifted off of the whole Cambridge saga, I think what was seen was that the predictive power of this magic machine that they built was actually no more um, effective than using demographic-based modeling that Obama's campaign, for example, famously used so effectively. So all of this data that Cambridge stole and all of this magic science that they created around personality profiling actually was no more predictive than the demographic models that we use. And that makes sense because actually, you know, what Facebook pages you like and what whiskey you drink and all of that sort of rubbish um, uh, is not as consequential as what language you speak, what race you mm. are, what gender you are, because those things are still the primary determinants of our political persuasions. Um, and for those of us working to um, create movements that genuinely represent plural societies, um, the day that we can no longer rely on those demographic indicators as a predictor of support, I think is the day that we have succeeded in our cause. Mm. Um, and hopefully, by virtue of that, created um, a, a level of support um, for our movement that, um, that helps to sustain us. Um, so I think there's a very real place to answer your actual question for technology and campaigns. I think it has a heck of a lot to do with organizing, mm. organizing effectively, communicating within your organizers and providing them the tools to get the job done, particularly making sure, I mean, a campaign is a very big, um, a complex uh, um, uh, organization that's not unlike a startup, um, uh, distributed across a geographical area with lots and lots of moving parts, um, phasing over a period of time with each um, phase having things like training and tools and um, objectives that are completely different from the other. And, uh, you know, you may also have to deal with things like um, um, the, the flow of money through the campaign, again, over a geographic area. So th there can be huge opportunities for the effective um, application of technology to effective organizing. And in the context of, of movements that we're talking about, I think that's the, the biggest potential. Um, obviously, social media um, is an important channel for communication. Um, but social media, social media is like t TV and radio and newspapers these days. It's just another channel. Mm. And in the same way as only certain people read newspapers and listen to the radio these days, you know, I, I never, ever listen to the radio anymore, ever. You this listen not to wonderful something. podcasts like, like this one. <laughs> Most definitely. Um, <laughs> as in the same way as those are channels, um, uh, um, social media is also a channel. And, um, and, and they're all, uh, I mean, you, you can't mine social media and expect it to be a representative sample of your population. Mm -hmm. But it is another channel, and I think it will increasingly be uh, an, an effective channel in the future. And, and that's the extent to which I, I think social media has a role to play. Yeah. If uh, one, one thing that I do think people are forgetting um, uh, quite a lot for, and have done for some time is that, you know, when you also talk about building movements, there's a, an obsession with the, 
let me put it this way, you know, how do you build a movement? There's an obsession with tech. There's an obsession with all the organizational aspects. Mm-hmm. But not nearly enough conversation is held um, or enough podcasts, actually, um, as I hand out a business card, um, <laughs> about, um, about message. Um, and also, and, and, and not necessarily the message that, that a candidate is going to talk about, but the messages that people can adapt to work in their communities is at the end of the day, what inspires people to action is, uh, is a call to action and a message that connects with people's emotions. And, um, you know, Warwick was speaking about channels and social media just being another channel. Um, in order for any channel to work, whether it's face-to-face contact, whether it's a TV advert, um, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a, a, a debate, you've got to have a message um, that is consistent with your philosophy um, and your vision, but also connects and inspires people emo- uh, emotively um, to sort of connect, you know, the, the talk about tech and um there's lots of people selling snake oil and voter files and data all over the world. But I think the best example of where you can have everything you possibly want and still get it wrong um, was famously Hillary Clinton in 2016. Mm. Um, in terms of an organized campaign, um, uh, she and her team had probably the most well-structured, well-resourced um, well put together campaign in terms of mechanics and tech ever, but she didn't have a message that inspired people. Um, she wasn't clear about why actually she was in the race mm. and people were used as tools um, rather than as actual stakeholders in a movement, which ultimately uh, failed her. And, and unfortunately that was in stark contrast to um, the current madman that's uh, sitting in the White House. Yeah, I was just about to say, if, if you contrast that to what his approach was, was almost like he's he will always be there in person. Like yes. there's there's yes. no substitute for the personal Trump brand to yes uh, make that 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 personal con- that, that personal contact with with people. And I almost often get the sense that um, the social media hype can very often become a very loud echo chamber that derails you from your campaign. And it's almost like, um, well, I mean, I would love to hear from you. Um, You've been a a campaign manager a number of times in the mix. How do you cut out that noise? How do you decide which noise to listen to and which noise to ignore? Mm. When it comes to, I mean, it's polling, it's the news, it's what you get from the ground, it's your own campaign team, and then it's loud Twitter Shouting yeah. at you, and and Warwick shouting at me, and Warwick. As well. yeah. I mean, okay, um, but he, him we can actually mute now, so yeah. that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I it, it is one of the most impossible things because campaigns are incredibly pressured environments. Uh, candidates and and political leaders are consuming all the various channels you've mentioned and getting worried and are we doing the right thing um you know shouldn't we be doing this shouldn't we be doing that i think at the at the end of the day it's about having a very clear strategy of saying we've got a plan um we've got a a particular objective we've worked out how we're going to achieve that objective we've worked out our own measures um, of how we're going to track and measure and evaluate whether we are achieving that. 
and yeah, let's stick and stay the course. Um, the the best example of that, um, and I hate to admit it uh, because it's uh, not a party I particularly care much for, but it's the Conservatives in in the UK in election 2015. Um, where a campaign was run under David Cameron at the time and um, uh, their campaign team where they had a very clear strategy of how they were going to win an outright majority. Um, People thought it was going to be a hung parliament. They had a clear strategy of targeting specific seats. Um, Everybody was, the media were focusing on what was going on in social media, what was going on in Westminster, but no one paid any attention to the seat targeting strategy that was employed by the Conservatives, particularly in the southwest of England at the time. The fact that what was going on in Westminster and being consumed in the in the so-called bubble meant nothing when it came to rural Cornwall and, and parts of rural Britain. And despite um, a lot of people in the Conservative Party getting quite upset and saying, we've got this totally wrong, they stuck to their guns. They developed their own evaluation uh, uh, mechanisms, which were a combination of both uh, movements, uh, sorry, uh, feedback from the ground, tracking, polling, and their own kind of social media listening, which if you used to the other can be good. They stuck to it and they, and they surprised um, uh, many um, a, a person in the bubble when they actually won an outright majority. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, they then a year later when they messed that all up by having a Brexit referendum, which has changed uh, uh, Britain forever. But that 2015 election in the context of the question you asked is probably the best example of ignoring the bubble, sticking to strategy um, and, and rolling it out. Yeah, I, uh, I am afraid have a far less unique um story in 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 the 2008 Barack Obama campaign uh it was just such a phenomenally groundbreaking campaign and I think um when we look back we forget how much of a nobody he was when yeah when he got started and uh and in the the lineup of candidates and the sort of the giant that Hillary Clinton was in that particular um lineup how unlikely it was that someone like him could win. Um, and it was a truly remarkable confluence of a great campaign and a great candidate. Um, and uh, Macron's story is probably remarkable for the same kind mm. of reason, because it is, uh, again, a great candidate and uh, and a great campaign. And, and I think it's probably a little unfortunate, at least in our environment, that it's, um, that that story isn't being told in English as much as it could. Yeah, because um, I don't think that story is as well known as it should be. Um, as, you know, since we are on um, a podcast um, related to a foundation promoting liberalism, I, I thought I would just take this opportunity to to share some thoughts about uh, about how how the environment we find ourselves. Um, competing against a sort of growing populist onslaught in many ways. Um, and, and I think that, that what we have done, unfortunately, as liberals is, is um, come up with a very sort of base definition of populism, sort of lump anyone who looks or smells like that definition into the, the, the group of populists, and then try our best not to be anything like that. Mm. Oh, you're wearing a red cap that says something in white letters sure you're one of them yeah and then uh, and then 
somewhat sort of uh, uh, cut off our noses despite our faces. Um, um, and uh, uh, sorry, note to listeners, if you're ever on a podcast, don't use obscure English uh, metaphors uh, when people from other um, language groups will be listening. Um, so uh, uh, I, I guess um, I think there's an important challenge for us. I don't have the answer to this yet, but I think there's an important challenge for us to start thinking about where the the ideological underpinnings of the current populist um, movements that we've seen begin and end and where their tactics begin and end because those tactics are just tactics it's the ideology that's problematic um it's the it's the extent to which they are leveraging identity and creating us's and thems and trying to close rather than open that is a problem um but the the tactics that are being used the kind of communication that is being used the extent to which they try to relate to the population, be part of the population, um, speak extremely emotively, re- relate as effectively as possible. Those are things that we need to be learning. And at the moment, we're distancing ourselves from them because we think that it's populist to be doing mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, there are two really, really great examples Um uh, that are readily accessible. If you if you go onto YouTube and maybe we can share the links um, on the podcast, and you ha- have a look at the two minute videos that were um, flighted the night before the 2016 uh, U.S. presidential elections, one of Hillary Clinton's and one of Donald Trump's, and uh, I wouldn't in a million years vote for Donald Trump, um, but that video was a clear of his was a clear winner. He told a story. He told a story that I could relate to, and I felt like, okay, I'm sympathetic to this story you're telling. Um, Whereas Hillary Clinton sat in what looked like an old age home um, and just sat there the whole time talking a kind of confusing babble mix of Mm. who knows what to us Mm. for two minutes, Um, all of which sounded very reasonable, and I was convincing myself all along that this is what America needed but it wasn't a story, it wasn't relatable, it wasn't emotive. And we've just got to spend the time and energy getting out of our comfort zone, learning how to be more effective like that. Mm. And one of the things we're accused of all the time is being elitist, um, being part of a sort of separate elite demographic that, that again, isn't grounded with the people. And, and I'm increasingly believing that the antidote to elitism is a willingness to build relationships. Absolutely. And that willingness to build relationships doesn't just mean kissing babies, right? Uh, because that's usually more for photo ops than actually building relationships. And sometimes illegal. <laughs> <laughs> the, the willingness um, to learn how to tell good stories, to learn how um, to relate effectively to the people that you're speaking with, the willingness to learn how to resonate with the people that you're speaking with, um, the willingness to make sure that you are regularly on the ground in communities connecting, um, the willingness, for example, of someone like Rory Stewart to put together a citizen's um, assembly. assembly of people that include his critics mm. to be part of the way that he governs and to be forced to relate to those people and build relationships with them, I think is a, is a massive challenge for us um, going forward. And if we 
if we make progress in that area, I think it's going to help us a lot. Yeah, and and just to connect to the to the initial discussion about the movement, it's it's ultimately about giving people a voice. Um, and I think you know there's been a misdiagnosis of of some of the reasons for populism. I mean, Brexit didn't happen because people believed that uh, Britain should leave the European Union. Brexit happened because people's lives uh, were not the way they wanted them to be. They were frustrated with the status quo. And liberals in the context of, of Britain did not actually speak to people, did not connect with them, did not actually understand what they were upset about. And if they had, and if they had allowed people um, to actually have their voice and contribute their voice to the Remain campaign, I think it would be very, very much a different situation today. Mm. Sure, I feel like <clears throat> we can talk for two million hours on this. Mm. So maybe let's... That would be uh, the world's longest podcast. It me. would be. Yeah. Um, and we would have a listenership of three, maybe yeah. two. I don't think I would listen to yeah. it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if if you could um, recommend one piece of reading or resource for someone who's interested to uh, think more about some of the, the things we've discussed today, what would your recommendation be to someone? So to be incredibly boring i suppose um but uh, for me the best ever book about election campaigns that is still relevant to this day um is audacity to win by david pluff surprise surprise clinton you knew i was going to say that yes uh, i believe i received the copy from yes you. I, I did yeah. um and and again just a disclosure i'm i'm not in any way connected to david pluff and nor do i receive any royalties for his you work i know uh, uh, it would be wonderful um uh but um his his uh, description about uh what warwick was describing earlier of how a nobody um, uh, built a movement, uh, stayed authentic, and also stuck to a specific strategy and did something that I think is that liberals don't look nearly enough at, and that is expanding the electorate, mm. um, <clears throat> actually creating a new market of people that are not necessarily always interested in voting or coming to vote. It's just it's it's inspiring, and despite all the tech changes that have happened in the decades since, the fundamental principles are still relevant to today. So that's a very long answer, sorry. So audacity to win. Audacity oh. win, David Pluff. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, um, until Jonathan um, and I write a book, um, which <laughs> I'm feeling is increasingly necessary, uh, I think that uh, I would have to, at this point, given that Jonathan's covered a lot of the campaign-related stuff with the truly brilliant audacity to win, I think Daniel Kahneman's Thinking mm. Fast and Slow is really critical reading for understanding that you can't um, educate or rationalize voters into voting for you um, and that, the, that, that we simply have to knuckle down and learn how to, um, to uh, uh, decisions are made emotionally. Mm. That's how we make decisions as human beings. And if we aren't um, learning how to um, influence people's emotions and, 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 and trigger them in a way that uh, results in votes going the right way rather than the wrong way, um, then we're, we're going to be having a hard time for a long time. Yes. Well, uh, so hopefully everyone can get cracking on that and then we can have less Dutertes and less uh, 
these madmen at the steering wheel absolutely um, just bring some some normalcy to the world mm. and some liberalism some freedom mm. how about that mm. absolutely <laughs> cool so thank you very much uh, this has been phenomenal um thank you for your time here in gumishbach we know we have a seminar starting in a couple of minutes yeah. so let's get let's cracking let's get cracking on that yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you Clint.